Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. So I said to her, we've got to reduce the size of the board. As, as 75 is a mob, um, and, and you're, you are devaluing your individual board members when you have a board that large. I said the board should be no more than 35 uh, for the type of organization we were. Uh, other organizations should be no more than 15. Um, but I said 35. She agreed with me. And I said, this is your problem. I can't be anywhere near this. Hi, this is Joan Gary. And I'm here this morning with Alexander Sanger. The name Sanger may be familiar to some of you. He is the grandson of Margaret Sanger, the founder of the birth control movement nearly uh, 100 years ago. He's the author of a book called Beyond Choice, Reproductive Freedom, and currently sits as the chair of the International Planned Parenthood Council. Alex, it's great to have you here this morning. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. So um, our uh, path this morning on this podcast is going to take a number of different paths. Um, we are going to largely talk, obviously, about the nonprofit leadership space. And I wanted to begin by talking about your bio, which surprised me. Um, in addition to your credential as one of the most 100 most influential people on the planet by Earth Times, your bio also reminded me that you didn't always get a paycheck in the nonprofit sector. Tell me about that. Well, I started out as a Wall Street lawyer, uh, and that paled after about 15 years. And um, I went into the manufacturing business, of all things. Now, how did you make that switch? Well, it was a family uh, investment that uh, my brothers uh, kind of got me into. Um, we bought an auto parts company, of all things, that was making dashboards and things like that for General Motors and Chrysler. And so um, there I was, uh, switched from a very palatial uh, office uh, doing trust and estates and tax work on Wall Street for very wealthy families to a somewhat gritty um, suburban factory in, in, uh, in rural Maryland um, where we were making auto parts. And it was one tough business, I can tell you that. So um, the big lesson, what's the biggest lesson you learned working in the gritty manufacturing business? Well, it was... Um, the expression back then, uh, the big thing back then was called management by walking around. That was kind of the new buzzword in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I did and what my brother and I did. Um, we didn't have desks. We did not have offices. We were constantly walking around the factory. We had three factory buildings. We ran three shifts 24-7. Uh, um, and we were out there every minute checking on the workers, how they were doing, how the product was doing. Were we meeting, you know, the schedules for deliveries because auto companies worked on what was called just-in-time delivery, and your thousand pieces of some engine um, had to be fitted in with, you know, a couple of other hundred pieces that were made by some other manufacturer and had to be done right at Tuesday at 3.20 p.m., and your delivery had to get there at 3.15 p.m. It was It was very exacting and tough work. Interesting. So then all of a sudden, you move from the auto parts manufacturing business to the world of nonprofit. Um, so give me the genesis of the switch and what it felt like. Well, the move was into Planned Parenthood. And at college, um, I wrote my senior thesis on my grandmother. I was the first person ever permitted into her archive. She died during my sophomore year. 
and I started writing this paper in my junior year. So I, I saw her letters and diaries before anyone else did. In the mid-80s, as I was a, a partner of this law firm, I went on the board of Planned Parenthood of New York as a volunteer, and I served for six years as a, as a member of the board. The one thing I said was, to the people who recruited me, I said, I will never fundraise. I don't know how to fundraise. I don't like it. I'm not going to do it. Uh, within a year, I was the chair of the development committee of <laughs> Planned Parenthood of New York City. Um, and I was there six years, and the uh, CEO resigned very suddenly uh, for personal reasons. Um, and the board was looking around going, what do we do now? And I said to the board chair, you know, I guess I've been running this company. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty large size, 300 employees, and we had 300 employees at Planned Parenthood of New York. And I said, well, I, I know how to do this. And the board went, yippee, thank, thank God, someone knows how to do this. And so this was in 1991. Early 90, yeah, end of 90, early 1991, I came in. Okay, so talk about that. So, um, you know, I had the experience also of moving from the for-profit sector to the non-for-profit sector. Um, and, um, and it was really different, uh, you know, working for a board chair versus a boss. Um, I joked with colleagues that I had never been to a staff offsite where people cried before, you know, that it was really, really different. How did you deal with the cultural shift? Well, it, they are really different worlds, but in some ways the same. The one thing that I kept with me was the management by walking around. I was out in the clinics and with the education programs every day of the week. I really, I just had, I, I would not sit at my desk and try to be a boss and give orders. That just was not me. Um, so I was always in the clinics bringing donuts to the staff at all hours, um, cheering them on, um, but knowing what they did and knowing what the patients needed from us and how to deliver. Well, I think the interesting thing, and it sounds like you and I learned the same thing, is that um, staff members at nonprofits are not driven by how much they make. They are driven by having a voice and being appreciated and valued, and that that's part of, part of what I heard in that story. Yeah, no question. Um, the people working for Planned Parenthood, uh, the, you know, the nurses and the uh, nursing assistants could make much more in a hospital um, or in a private doctor's office, but they came to us because they cared about their neighborhood. Um, they cared about the people they grew up with, people less fortunate. They wanted to make a difference. Um, they wanted to be noticed and appreciated, and they wanted, you know, me to be there and to hear their gripes and complaints and whining, which I did. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I wanted them to know that, um, you know, I, I was going to be there for them in, in, in tough times um, and, and in good times. It's what I started to call three-dimensional management when I left Showtime and came over to GLAAD, is that I, I, I began to understand that people perform better, they have higher degrees of job satisfaction, if you ask them how they spent their weekend and you really mean it. Yeah, absolutely. And you ask about their children and how they're doing, and you remember their children's names. And with That's what it would, would make you a very good fundraiser, too, by the way. Well, yeah, and uh, with 300 employees at... Uh, you know, that, that was a, a challenge. The thing that was also fascinating was in the for-profit world, the biggest thing you had to look at were, were your loan uh, indenture requirements. You had to have a certain amount of cash on hand at all times, certain amount of gross profit margin, all those numbers you looked at all the time in the, in the not-for-profit world. There's so many more stakeholders other than your bank. Um, 
You've got a board, you have donors, you have the government, you have policymakers, you have the general public, you have your staff, the patients you're dealing with, um, and uh, many more things floating around and many more moving targets at all times. And the real problem, and, and which is the biggest issue for nonprofits, is how do you measure success? Um, you know, at, at Planned Parenthood, we're out to change the world. We're out to change the culture, change how people think about women and reproductive rights. How do they think about abortion? Um, how do you measure that mindset that we're changing out there? Um, you look at laws being changed against us for the last 25 years. Um, we've not made a whole lot of progress, and actually we've been going backwards. Can we say Planned Parenthood is a failure? No, um, because we have helped millions and millions of women every year uh, during that course of time, and I think eventually we'll win. But you know, a cynic could look at uh, what we've done and said, well, you, you haven't made any progress. The um, the notion of cultural change actually is, um, I, I think, the most powerful leverage of all. Um, you know, when I spent eight years at GLAD, our business was about cultural change and uh, media and those things that actually do change hearts and minds as opposed to laws and legislation. Um, and I can't help but think, just, uh, you know, taking out my own soapbox for a minute when I see what's going on at the Supreme Court, the, the work that we did 10 years ago to ensure that gay and lesbian couples were on the wedding pages of the New York Times, those things matter and they actually are connected. Uh, no question. And the, um, the, the kind of the sad thing is that you look at all the polling around reproductive freedom and what people think about abortion is that the polls are unchanged for the last 35 years. Wow. Uh, the, the polls in 1974 taken by Gallup are exactly same as the polls taken last week. Um, public opinion has not changed one iota about whether people think abortion should be legal all the time, none of the time, or some of the time. The figures are unchanged, as opposed to gay marriage, for the you know, huge change in that. And um, so, uh, that's why uh, one of the things I think we want to talk about is the Planned Parenthood is changing uh, their approach to this to try to, you know, change how people approach the issue. Um, and you know, the word choice may not be working in any longer. I don't think it's working. That's why I called my book Beyond Choice, because uh, I thought we needed to approach things in a, in a new way. Good. Before we get there, let's talk a little bit about, uh, so you're, you've been a, uh, on the board, you've been a board chair. You've been a CEO. Um, define for my listeners, if you would, what you see as the kind of the primary role of the board chair. Well, the, the board chair has got to be the, um, the, the, the funnel, the, the, the point of the, of the funnel where they take in um, opinions and ideas from the board at large and from the, to a certain extent from the community and get it to the CEO who then funnels it out to the staff. The two of them, the two of them meet um, in a unique place, um, where the board chair um, has got to be representing the big picture, um, what the world thinks and what the world needs, um, bringing in ideas and values of the community, um, and also representing the organization back out to the community. Um, and, and the CEO is running the staff, trying to uh, allocate resources to attain the mission, uh, keep the wheels turning and greased. Um, and carry out the day-to-day -day work. 
Um, and, and so then now that begs the larger question is, is, is as a CEO at Planned Parenthood for 10 years, you've probably had several different board chairs. Describe what makes that it's a unique relationship, right? The, the CEO runs this organization. It's not really a boss. It's a thought partner. It's a lot of different things. Describe for me what you see as the ideal relationship between the board and the CEO, because I believe that's pivotal, pivotal to a healthy nonprofit relationship. Well, the relationship is going to um, um, vary depending on the personalities of the two people involved. Ideally, (laughs) um, the CEO and the board chair are going to know what their individual roles are, what their institutional roles are, Um, that there's a division of labor, um, and that the uh, CEO knows that the board chair is going to run the board, run the board meetings, set the agenda for the board, um, and be, a, be a, a spokesperson out to the community when needed. Um, and the CEO runs the staff, hires and fires the staff, runs the programs. Um, it's so much messier than that in real life. Um, gray areas happen all the time. Um, like who's going to be the spokesperson for the organization? It right. can be a big issue. Um, and here you have to, you have to kind of differentiate between new organizations and more seasoned ones. Because there's there's a founder's syndrome that yes. can happen, and the founder can either be the CEO or the board chair. It, 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 you know, founders take on different roles depending on what they want to do in their life, um, and they want to be the one to be noticed in the community, be addressing community issues, to be the one invited to the White House or to the governor's mansion or whatever. And I think that that that's emblematic of the kinds of tensions that can arise between a board chair and a CEO. Oh, no, no question. Um, and you have to set out these roles ahead of time. Um, and, uh, you know, I was usually the spokesperson for Planned Parenthood just because it was, it was natural for me to do that. And I didn't have board chairs who wanted to do that, uh, fortunately. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll give you one fascinating example. We, when I started out, I had a board of 75 people at Planned Parenthood of New York. And I said to the board chair, after a month of this, God bless you. I said, I, I, you know, being an ex-lawyer, I kept a diary of my time for my first month, every six minutes, which is what lawyers do, right? Terrible. I actually encourage clients to do that to to see whether they're spending their time well or not. Yep, yeah. and and uh, it, it is a good idea. I I calculated that in my first month, I spent a third of my time preparing for board meetings, in board meetings, and recovering from board meetings. Um, and I said to my board chair, "This is not working." What do you think the percentage ought to be? Um, I think anything over about a fifth, 20%, maybe is too much because there's so many demands on the CEO's time. Right. That sounds about right. Um, So I said to her, we've got to reduce the size of the board. 75 is a mob, um, and and you are devaluing your individual board members when you have a board that large. I said the board should be no more than 35 uh, for the type of organization we were. Uh, Other organizations should be no more than 15. Um, but I said 35, she agreed with me, and I said, this is your problem. I can't be anywhere near this. And so that was her role, was to get the board itself to shrink itself. How long did it take? It took a year. Um, and it took a lot of meetings and a lot of angst, and we set up kind of a parallel advisory board to kind of assuage people's feelings, still make them feel wanted and connected. Um, it was not easy, but it, the efficiency and the decision-making and the value added we got from the board members was immense. It sounds like you had a very strong board chair at that time. 
Well, we did. I, w- I was very fortunate. Yes, fortunate is the word because I think that the, you know, the lion's share of my business is around sort of how CEOs manage with weak boards, how weak boards manage with weak CEOs, strong board. You know, those those things. You things have to be really quite nicely aligned. Uh, a question. One of the questions that came from one of my readers is: Do you think that a nonprofit can thrive in spite of a weak board? Well, if you've got a founder CEO type who's this, you know, ringleader, you know, who can lead me Pied Piper type, um, yes, it can. Um, but it's not healthy because there's no continuity, there's no succession planning. Um, a person gets hit by a bus, um, the organization's dead. Um, you've got to have a strong board. You've got to have a CEO who can empower a board, even though that may be against every instinct and every fiber in their being to be a total control freak and want to do it all themselves. Um, that's not healthy. Right. It's not going to work. Yeah, because what happens is the, the Pied Piper, whether he or she gets hit by a bus or goes on to something else, the institution is way too heavily reliant on that particular individual. No, no question. And so that, that's where the it, – it's sharing of power is what it is. And, uh, and the CEO, founder type, uh, you know, type A type, really has got to take a long look in the mirror and realize they would be better off if they did share the power. So one last question from one of my readers was on the topic of sabbaticals. Should nonprofit staff get them? Under what circumstances? And which staff should be entitled to them? Sabbaticals are the norm in academia, but the board of a non-academic institution has to ask itself what benefit does the institution get as opposed to the CEO? Um, I just went through this in another organization, and we concluded, um, after a a loud and vociferous argument with (laughs) academics on the board, um, that it would not be appropriate because we could not discern um, a benefit to the organization, even though it might have been good for the CEO to have six months off doing other things. uh, The organization would be left high and dry, we concluded, and uh, so we, we declined to offer a sabbatical to our CEO. And did that have an impact on your CEO's uh, morale in any way? Um, it did not. Um, she's very happy with the, the package we have for her. Um, and the idea did not come from her. It came from an academic on the board. So she never knew about it. Ah, okay. You, you had some cover there. Um, so before we end, I wanted to circle back to the conversation we had at the beginning regarding messaging on reproductive rights. Um, you'd obviously tease to it in the name of your book, uh, but clearly there are, uh, the movement is move, seems to be moving away from the phrase pro-choice. Where is it moving to? What we are looking at, at the plan, in the Planned Parenthood family is putting ourselves in a woman's shoes. And that is something you cannot do because every woman's situation is different. Um, young people do not like labels. They don't want to be labeled pro-choice, pro-life. They don't want to be labeled anything, actually. That is correct. Um, and they understand the complexity of the decisions that women and men have to make around reproduction, about having a child or not, um, how to raise that child, about issues of human sexuality. Um, so we believe that everyone stands in their own shoes, has to make their own decision, and that's the message that we're trying to get across rather than labels. So were you way ahead of the curve with the title of your book, Beyond Choice? Well, I like to think so, uh, immodestly, um, because I've been thinking that for quite a while. Um, 
And, uh, and besides which, it also was a reactive label, wasn't it? Well, I think, uh, as I remember, back in the 60s, the people opposed to legal abortion came up with the name pro-life first. And so we came up on our side with pro-choice, and the divisive fight continued from, from there on with no change in the polling over the last 35 or 40 years. Um, it's an interesting, the idea of, not, of trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes is really a very powerful metaphor, I think, and, and not something that is easily done. I, um, I took my daughter to the Holocaust Museum, and I don't know if you've been there, but one of the most powerful exhibits there is a glass-encased wall of shoes all kinds of shoes of all different shapes and sizes. And for me, it put a, I know it sounds funny to say that a shoe can put a human face on an issue, but it did in this most sort of goosebumpy kind of way. And I think it's a really good model for, for the reproductive rights movement to say, no, it, you, it, it, you have to let people stand in their own shoes. Yes, I've often said, and I did not originate this remark, that the average American thinks abortion should be legal for rape, incest, and for them. And on that note, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, Alex talks about all kinds of reproductive rights issues at a blog that is aptly named alexandersanger.com, and he is the author of Beyond Choice, Reproductive Freedom in the 21st Century. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you join us next time. My guest will be Vu Lee. Vu is not only an executive director working to diversify nonprofit leadership, but he also writes a terrific nonprofit humor blog called nonprofitswithballs.com. Yes, that's what I said. You can expect that Vu will explain the name of his blog and more. Join us. Nonprofits are messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.